0: Today, we have an awesome and inspiring interview with Pete Scholl, Associate Professor at Shanghai Jiao Tong University, and who is the Principal Investigator of the Wearable Systems Laboratory. Before we get started, though, we wanted to add that if you're enjoying Boom and finding value in it, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Leave us a five-star rating and review. (laughs) We're going to start reading some of our reviews out, and we're going to start with a wonderful review from Callowavy today, who says, Bravo, clap emoji, (laughs) clap emoji. (laughs) Melissa and Hannah, after listening to the show, I've become so energized about the topic of biomechanics. Quite frankly, I didn't realize just how badly I needed the Boom in my life. (laughs) Boy, do I know it now. After making this part of my weekly routine, for the past couple of weeks I feel more aware of the current topics and issues in the space And I'm excited to be a more active part of the community You two are bringing a breath of fresh air Into the topic that is much needed Keep going Hands up uh, <laughs> I don't know <laughs> Emoji Crazy. Um, Yeah. Yes, so what a wonderful review Thank you, Callaway, And we're excited to read out other um, reviews in the future So with that, let's jump into a bit of Boom
1: Well, today's Bit of Boom is a fun bit of history that I learned recently from a friend and something I could not believe I didn't know as a biomechanist.
0: I love that. I love when you bring in some history. (laughs) And
1: this is history because we have an article from Washington, the Washington Times on Sunday, March 1st, 1908. At least it said March 1, 08. And I assumed it wasn't two thousand and
0: eight
1: And it's titled, "Have the Capitals debutantes dance from Washington to Chicago this season?"
0: Oh.
1: Every waltz is a mile long, and a two-step carries a couple over a mile and a quarter says
0: the pedometer. Wow, that's a long way.
1: right? So the article then extrapolates. they're very, you know, mathematical about this. That from an eight-minute waltz being approximately one mile, they estimate that debutantes dance 900 miles in a single, I don't know, debutante season. Okay. Because they're attending like 40-plus events, and they're estimating about 20-plus dancers at each event.
0: That's a lot of uh, ground covered, (laughs) Right? And
1: so the pedometer was something of a status. Mm. Like the article says that, and this is a quote, no bud at least i think i'm that was the word is truly elite unless she has a little ticker fastened to her bodice and no young man is quote in the swim if he has not one of the same little instruments attached to his waistcoat wow
0: are you sure this wasn't published in 2008 <laughs>
1: Yeah, there's some language there that went over my head, but I just love it because I think it's really humbling. Like, I often think, like, you know, there's the quantified self movement where people are really into wearables. And I just feel like it shows that this isn't a new phenomenon, like being aware of your own and wanting to be aware of your own, you know, bodily movements and and how much you're moving
0: that's so true it reminds me like this past weekend I was at a music festival and every day I I wasn't doing that much walking but just from dancing to the music I, I had walked over 30,000 steps oh my every gosh, day wow. and it's just like wow like at the end of the day I was like my feet really hurt like <laughs> how far did I go I was like that's a lot of steps like something I don't even usually do on a normal day so right yeah I know I think every
1: time we go to the club we need to <laughs> be
0: measuring yeah, but something that you just don't notice because you're just having so much fun. Enjoying exactly. Yeah. And the
1: debutantes, they apparently like to report their numbers after each dance. So mm. I feel like that's a trend we should bring back. Yeah. Like you at the music festival.
0: I agree. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> well, speaking of wearables, now let's go into our interview with Pete where we can hear what he's using wearables for. As far as we know, it's not for dancing, but still really exciting. Still a
2: great application. <laughs>
0: We are here with Professor Pete Shull. Pete is an associate professor of mechanical engineering at Shanghai Jiao Tong University and the principal investigator of the Wearable Systems Laboratory. Thanks for being with us, Pete.
2: Thanks, Melissa. Really appreciate you inviting me on here. I've li- listened back through some of the archive of the Boon Podcasts, and they're very interesting topics and high quality professional podcasts. So, it's <laughs> <laughs> very exciting well, to be on here myself. So. Looking forward
0: to it. We appreciate it. I'm sure this is going to be another exciting conversation. And some of my work actually is based on um, gait modifications that alter the knee adduction moment for people with knee osteoarthritis that builds off of your work. So it's also cool to connect here on Boom and learn more about the research that you're leading now. But we always like to start off the episode with asking the question of when did you first know that you wanted to be a biomechanist?
2: Yeah, when I was young, I always loved playing sports like a lot of biomechanists do. And so I grew up playing sports and I grew up in Montana. We did a lot of outdoor backpacking and hiking and played football and basketball. And then when I went to college, I studied mechanical engineering and really got into robotics in undergrad. And my master's at Stanford, I was studying robotics. And then when I did my PhD, I just realized that all the best robots were trying to Imitate humans, like the human was sort of the ultimate <laughs> movement machine. And you've probably seen the recent Atlas videos from Boston Dynamics where they have the robot that can do parkour and like jump off a box and do a flip, which is totally amazing. And then, like a few days later, I was scrolling through YouTube and saw a human jumping on a trampoline. And he did eight flips in a row. I was <laughs> like, okay, that's cooler. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, what? That's so amazing. So I think I really got into biomechanics through that route. And then during my PhD, was really interested in not just the assessment, but the training part of it and how we can actually give people wearable feedback to train their movement, to improve performance, maybe to run faster or prevent injuries, and then to also to treat disease like knee osteoarthritis, and I just thought that's such a cool area because the humans are so complex that we can augment that. And so that's how I got into it.
0: Mm. I wonder what kind of feedback you'd need to be able to do eight flips on a trampoline. (laughs) Yeah,
2: Yeah. (laughs) that is pure feed forward. There's no feedback at that point.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you can't have any fear in that equation.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that was amazing. I showed my kids that video. He landed face first on a mat.
1: <laughs> the painful side of biomechanics.
2: Yeah, I'd like to research that topic. Get my grad students to do some testing.
0: <laughs> that's what grad students are for, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's hey, you're right. Pizza you,
0: recruiting. Yeah,
2: if you do this, you might win a $10 gift card. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh. Well, thanks for sharing. It's always fun to see where people come from. And now where you are now, you're working on some really interesting projects in your wearable systems lab, one of which is hand gesture recognition. And you've even developed an algorithm to detect hand gestures while walking using a wrist-worn IMU. And this seems like a really interesting but challenging task It's a human task, right? So could you tell us first what motivated you to work on this gesture recognition task and some of the applications of the algorithm that you've built?
2: Sure. So our lab does all things wearables, uh, wearable systems labs, so sensing and feedback. And I personally have a bent towards research that will get used, usually in industry or somehow more practical. How could this be useful? And so the reason we started that was in 2015. This was an industry project. Samsung wanted us to create some kind of wristband that you could capture gestures with. And they wanted to do EMG and IMU. And I said, there's no way that's going to work because there's no muscles in the wrist. How can we possibly measure EMG? But they really wanted us to try. So we tried it and I'm glad we did it. It turns out you can measure EMG in the wrist because the signals will travel up through the tendons from the forearm and they'll kind of come together. So you get a whole bunch of signals together and you can actually capture that. And the other thing is at that time, we, that's when we started getting into AI and machine learning because there is a relationship between the EMG signals that you measure here and individual finger movements but it's so complex that there's no way you can make a model that's accurate enough to be useful. It's just such a complex relationship. So that's when we started using machine learning and we found that you can you can use machine learning and capture the patterns on the wrist and map them to finger movements and it works really well. So that's when we first realized that, wow, this machine learning stuff is gonna be very powerful for wearables and you can actually do hand gesture recognition. So that's how we first got into it. The applications are, I would consider hand gesture recognition, a general human computer interface. So another one would be uh, voice recognition, Siri or Alexa. Siri, turn on my TV and flip to channel four. So it's kind of the next step beyond spoken is is you can, instead of doing that, you could just sort of point and like turn on this channel or go to the next one. So it's it's really for... <laughs> to make humans more lazy is that we don't even want to speak now. (laughs) We're so lazy. It's like, just go do that. Just go do that. You can sort of do PowerPoint presentations and uh, we've, we've used it to control drones, which is pretty cool. If you have a drone flying, you can just like point in the direction you want it to go or up or down or stop or forward. So it's just a general interface. There's more noble applications, like people who have, they're deaf and mute and they can't speak so you can do automatic sign language recognition so as they're signing things you can convert that to text or voice automatically so people can can talk to each other um so but it's a very general open area uh you you may have seen that the facebook reality labs is really leaning into this hand gesture recognition to augment virtual reality and augmented reality and so trying to capture hand motions it's very practical a lot of the Smartwatch manufacturers really want to get this hand gesture as a new way to in, interact with different devices and robots.
0: It's pretty amazing. As you were doing that, it was reminding me of the movie um, Matilda. I was literally going to yeah. say Matilda, <laughs> <laughs> where she can just like point and like open the blinds, or, you know. <laughs> um, but that's so that is so cool. I'm I'm curious, like how sensitive EMG is to picking up these signals, or how. Depending on where the EMG is located on the wrist, are they like, we always worry about placing sensors in the wrong spot? Or are these algorithms pretty robust to a range of different people and applications and sensor placement?
2: Yeah, you're clearly studying machine learning uh, because this is the the very key question. And the, the key challenge is, yeah, we can train someone to use it and then you take the wristband off and put it on again if it's not on in the exact same place, then the training data may or may not be useful. And so you can get varying results or I could take it off and then put it on Hannah's wrist and her wrist size may be slightly different. So that's where it's all about the training data. So you train a big database, then it can work for all three of us. So it's very similar to voice. We have an Alexa system that we use all the time. And uh, it never used to work for kids, which is nice because our kids were always trying to, Alexa, play, you know, some song that we don't want to hear again, or yeah, play <laughs> fr- play Frozen two soundtrack, and we didn't <laughs> want to play that. <laughs> but unfortunately, Sounds they like updated their database, plans. so now it works with children, and uh, so. Now, children and adults and people can all speak and it will recognize the same word. Now they have different languages as well. So it's the same thing with the wristband is you just need to build up the database. So we need to do training on a lot of people that have similar sized wrists and the location needs to be in, in different places. And if you do that, it can work. So we've done other work with wearable systems for estimating like knee adduction moments directly from IMUs. And you have the same, the same issue, which is getting a data set that includes different movements. And as long as the data set captures what people would do and the locations are in that range, then it can work. But the algorithms themselves are fairly robust. It's often capturing the correct data that's clean.
0: Mm. Right. Yeah. I have a question that is a little bit more to do with collecting this data. And it's coming to mind because we had a debate today between a few labs on traditional motion capture systems versus video capture versus wearable systems. And one of the side conversations we were having was with wearables is that it requires such a large database and a large amount of people to train these models. But then how do we get this data? How do we incentivize people to wear the technology um, to get this data without first being able to like use it or interpret it, if that makes sense? And I'm kind of curious about your thoughts on that, on if you found ways to be able to collect this type of data or get people to use these devices so that you can then train your models to actually have useful information, but not really like starting with that.
2: Yeah. So how can you incentivize people to use your system when they don't see a direct benefit? Yeah, that's a, (laughs) yeah, that is, I think if it's posed in that way, then you're going to lose for sure. They need to see (laughs) some, they need to see some benefit when they're using it.
0: Yeah. So,
2: I mean, I could imagine as they're using it, people like to see their own data, right? They like to see reports at the end. So if you're able to give them any kind of analysis when they're done, this is how much you walked, or even if it's more uh, fuzzy and not specific kinematic angles, um, is you could just give feedback. People are so interested to know more about themselves. Everyone's very (laughs) self-centered and they want to know about themselves. And (laughs) You have the whole quantified self movement. So if you can sort of, we're going to, let you use this. And this would work on me too, right? I'd want to know how am I walking or what are the different things during the day? So I think that could be one way. The other comment is you do need a lot of data, but it's way less than you think. So machine learning and AI came out of kind of visual and searching millions of dog and cat photos online. And in that case, you do need millions of samples because it's such a diverse array. But like when we did our you know, estimating the adduction moment for flat ground rock walking for healthy subjects, you only need like 15 or 20 subjects to make a universal model, which means you don't need to collect more training data because you think about every single time step, you have all these sensors together and each sensor has so many features. Uh, it's actually a huge, like one full gait cycle is a ton of data. That's a ton of information. And it's also very similar to other people, even though from a human to human perspective, there are big differences. But just compared to like, if you took any two random people walking on flat ground, there's a ton of similarities. And so you can very quickly pull out features. So I would also say that the data sets required are totally manageable. So this is just an example, it will only work for flat ground and healthy people. But it was only yeah, 15 to 20 subjects. So you could redo that with NeoA patients on flat ground, and that would at least cover flat ground walking for those patient populations. So it's not like we need to get, wait until we have a million people for certain applications. And of course, the more sensors you have, the less trials you need. If you're trying to estimate this with only one wrist sensor and a foot sensor, like the reduced marker uh, sensor set, then that may require more like levels of a uh, higher am- amount of data. But yeah, those are my main comments on that. So yeah, give something people will feel good about and benefit. But yeah, it's also really not as much data as you you think you need.
1: Well, speaking of something that people can feel good about, another project that we notice you're working on is developing energy harvesting shoes, which I could imagine might be incentivizing for some people, especially with one of the reasons I don't like wearing like a Fitbit or Apple Watch or things like that is because I have to charge it. And it feels like everything these days I have to charge. So I could imagine if there was some way I could create my own energy without even thinking about it, that would be awesome. But we'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about what the impact you see here in deriving energy from wearable devices and how that will help advance, you know, the field and and where's that going? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I I think what you said is exactly right. So wearable devices are annoying to charge and there's other applications where, I mean, if you're going to go um, on a seven-day you know, backpacking trip or some of these extreme environments, you just don't want to carry a bunch of battery packs with you. And also some wearable devices require more energy, especially feedback or power devices will require more energy than... You know, some of the Fitbits are pretty good, right? They can last for a week or even a month, which is pretty nice. So in that case, it might not be as needed, but if you have vibration, uh, vibrotactile feedback or some kind of power feedback, you would want that. And so humans actually walking is not very efficient compared to a wheel or something rolling down the the road. And uh, every time you take a step, you're breaking. So for that study, we tried to capture this breaking energy. So like when you hit the ground, you sort of slide a little bit, it's a small slide. And during that slide, you would spin a generator and then that energy would be captured that you could use to store it or to power something in real time. And so that's the principle of it. The key challenge there, which, if you talk to Steve Collins or any of these guys, is that it's very hard to not increase metabolic cost once you start changing gait or if you have gait to reduce the cost. So I talked to him after we finished our study and realized that they create these new systems, but then they train people like an hour a day for three weeks or something. It's super intense to train them on the new gait pattern. And so we didn't do that. We just did a normal, like, first-off study. And so we captured, I think, one watt of energy, which is pretty good for walking. But the metabolic cost went way up because people walk differently once you put stuff on there. So I think that's a challenge, obviously. People are not willing to walk when it's super exhausting uh, or even a little more exhausting. So it's, you sort of need to retrain them to use a new device, just like if you have a new pair of shoes, or uh, I don't have any experience, but people who walk with high heels or something like that, I would assume it's a very different gait pattern. So that was the the side comment is gait training is important when you have an energy harvesting device like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Could you talk a little bit more about that you started talking about the mechanism behind the shoes and how it's able to harvest energy, and could you also share then how maybe that did affect gait or change how people were walking?
2: Yeah, so the concept is pretty simple. You have the shoe, and then below the shoe is a, a plate that's together. And so when you take a step, the top part will slide maybe two or three inches, and then when you lift up, there's a spring. It will re it will come back. So every time you take a step, it slides. And comes back. It's a a fast reaction mechanism. So as it's sliding, there's a a generator inside that you're just mechanically spinning it. And then you would capture the electrical energy from spinning that generator. That's the mechanism of how it works. It's a very much a design problem because we're heavy and when we take a step, there's a ton of force going into this mechanism that you're stepping on top of. It needs to be light, very light and very strong and robust. So there's a lot of iterations of prototypes getting it to work so that it wouldn't break and it would be light enough and capture the energy. And what we saw is that people, actually what they would do is they would shorten their gates, their stride length. And so that just naturally they would shorten it so that when they hit the ground, then they would slide. And when their foot came off, I guess the toe off point would be about the same as Mm -hmm. if you didn't have this mechanism. So that's kind of interesting. I thought it might be the opposite where you, you lengthen their stride. So they end up taking longer steps, sort of longer steps, but the same amount of energy. I do think it would, it might be possible to do that with training, which would be pretty cool as you would sort of be walk skating across and taking bigger steps. So it should in theory take like less energy and you're capturing it. So, but it's basically what you want it to be sliding during stance with one leg. So that's what you want. If you're doing that, then you sort of get this free sliding motion and you happen to be capturing that energy in like, like regenerative braking in a car, but it's hard to train that. So I think what people did instead is they would do most of the sliding, right? at heel strike and they would slide and then it was stable once it hit the end of the slider mechanism, then they would lift up their other foot. And so the stride length ended up being the same, but they shortened the first part. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, people never do what you think they're going to. I feel like that's been my experience.
2: (laughs) Yeah. The other thing that was weird was, you know, with running, you have heel strikers and forefoot strikers. We had the same thing with this mechanism, but for walking. So half the people would lead with the heel and then slide and the other half would lead with the toe and then slide, which is very strange because when normal people walk, we don't really see that for normal gait. So yeah. I don't know. That was unexpected as well. Not sure why.
0: Yeah. Well, you never know like where those unexpected findings might teach you later on or what those, yeah, might be what people might be doing. So it's kind of fun to to get those. <laughs> Sounds
1: kind of like moonwalking or something.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We
2: yeah, were like we set the limit on how far you could slide. So it's two or three inches, but What if you made it like a foot or like two feet? Then you're really like sliding all the way across. Yeah, you're like almost like roller skating. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Well, these are just two really cool projects that you're working on in your lab. Is there any other project that you're working on that you're excited about or want to briefly share?
2: Yeah, I guess one going back to the first project about hand gesture recognition Uh is... One issue that we that we found was just the size of EMG sensors and IMUs are kind of too big to put inside a wrist band. So it really needs to be inside a watch or something to be practical and usable. So we've been trying new sensors, trying to make it smaller and smaller. And our last attempt was to use the barometric pressure sensors inside your phone, but if you cover them with plastic it actually turns into a like a force a highly sensitive force pressure sensor which is pretty cool so we did that and then if you if you move your fingers if you look at the tendons there's actually a profile they'll change they'll go up and down and you can capture that change with the gestures so that was much smaller but now the one we're just starting is touch sensors so it's almost like the touch sensors you have on your cell phone screen And we're going to cover the wristband with these touch sensors. So they can also measure like kind of touch pressure. So that's super cool because they're like less than a millimeter thick and you can put them inside here. So that's pretty interesting. And the other thing is we've been experimenting with ultra wideband technology as an alternative to transmitting data, but also you can get position. So as you know, with wearables, we can only ever get angles, right? With IMUs, we can never get position. So the only way we can get position is if we make a model out of the, the IMU joint angles. And so ultra wideband has seen a resurgence where it's kind of like Bluetooth, but it will give you a position estimate if you have two or three of those. So we're starting to explore putting those across the body and now measuring positions directly. So it's it's already been used for stuff like Peloton when you're biking with a bunch of people and you want to know where they are or people running together on a soccer field, you can track their positions relative to each other it's with beacons, but it's within like 10 centimeters. So it's not quite accurate enough to be useful, but we're trying to explore if we could get this down to an accuracy where you could now measure positions on the body, which would be really cool. Cause you could say have one in on the wrist and then one just on your phone or on the chest and you wouldn't need the whole string of IMUs. You could just get that position directly. So. That's pretty cool. I remember AJ Sess was asking about this a few years ago. Can you just tell me one sensor that can measure position that's cheap and accurate? And I said, no, I, there's nothing out there. It's only joint angles. I'm sorry. <laughs> so we're hoping that technology could be a potential avenue to get position as well as angles.
0: That's super exciting. It's so cool to see you develop these different wearable systems that seem just so applied across like a range of, you know, from just everyday use to helping people with movement disorders. And it's just, it's really awesome to see that. And from some of the systems you develop, you've started companies with your most recent one is Sage Motion, which is a wearable haptic feedback system. And I guess kind of shifting gears here a little bit, we're super curious about some of the pros and cons of starting a company that stems from your research innovations.
2: Mm. Yeah, well we started uh, Sage Motion 2 years ago. It was mostly out of like frustrations in the lab. So we wanted haptic feedback and we would the only option is to make your own prototype. So prototypes can work well for about one paper and then you want to pass it to the next student and the code is so messy and there's a lot of, you know, electrical problems and the the wireless doesn't work and all this stuff. So other frustration was we just needed open algorithms. Um, I know Scott's a big believer in open science and kind of opening things. And most of the wearable systems, they are closed. So all their algorithms are kind of secret and you don't really know how they're calculating the joint angles. And sometimes they won't give you the raw data. It's processed raw data. And we really need raw data for uh, machine learning algorithms so, And then the third thing was customization. Sometimes you have to like wear a full body suit just to get a certain angle. And for a lot of these applications, let's say you just want to measure and train the knee flexion angle, you might really only need like two or three nodes to measure and to give feedback. So that's the reason we started the company is because of these. There wasn't any commercial systems. I mean, our lab bought most of them and none of them really worked and were portable or you could take them out of the lab. So that was kind of the reason that we started it. And we decided to split off the engineering work and the research work. So we wanted a research platform where you could just get in and you could program. Oh, and it's in Python too, which is way better for machine learning algorithms. There's so many libraries. So you can get in and just start programming in Python and you can write your algorithms and you can use any number of, of nodes. And so... That's the research part and trying different algorithms, trying different controls. And then the engineering part is, you know, making the wireless signal not break, making it work for long ranges, making sure all the electronics are stable and making like a a quality product is not really research. It's engineering. So there came a point where it became clear to split off those and put all the engineering and support work on one side and kind of to save time for I mean, sometimes labs want to make prototypes and for learning, which is good, but sometimes they just want to go apply stuff, especially outside of the lab, or they just want to write a new algorithm and they want it to work on the wearable system. So I'd say the pro is that was the vision and it's worked out really well because there's a very nice, like stable platform now is a stage motion system that our lab uses for research. But then... Other labs want this as well. So that's why we decided to commercialize it. So that that worked really well. And uh, I think it's nice to separate those out. And then the company is motivated to create a stable system that's really good and beneficial. They don't necessarily need to publish papers, but then the research labs can just spend all of their effort and focus on the algorithms. Yeah, and then it's open so they can share it with other labs. It tends to work pretty well for research applications. The cons are, I would say it just takes a lot of time. I mean, starting a company, going from prototype to product is a huge, a huge gap. There's a a lot of work that goes in there. So I remember somebody told me at one point, you should not start a company until after you get tenure, because it's going to be too busy. Yeah, too much time going into it. And I would agree with that. It's better to wait. It's a lot of time. It's exciting, but it's yeah, it's just a lot of time. So I think that's a con as it can be a lot of effort that goes into it. It's a totally different skill set, but it's also exciting because other people can use it and you kind of see the benefit of that. So yeah, those are the things that jump out.
1: Thanks. That's super helpful. And like, nice to hear that perspective, I think. And it's something, yeah, we don't often, we don't always talk about on boom. Like I feel like we're a lot in the academic side or the industry side, but it's nice to see the harmony in both. That was great, I think, advice. And we're wondering a little bit, you've got a pretty rich experience in having done your bachelor's in mechanical engineering in Texas and then doing your master's, PhD, and postdoc here at Stanford in California. Now you're a professor in Shanghai. So we're interested in hearing about that experience, that transition. What made you want to stay there? And what advice do you have for people that are also thinking about making that switch and starting a lab somewhere that you know it whether it be a different country or somewhere that's just wildly different from where they've been used to being
2: mm-hmm. well when i was at stanford there was a graduate exchange program where you could go to china for three months and and study in a lab and so that's the first time i explored that and so i was i think my third or fourth year maybe similar to you somewhere around where, where you guys are so they had a special program and I went on that to Tsinghua University in Beijing. And at that time, I just discovered the quality of research at the top tier universities in China is really high. It's comparable to Stanford. It's, it's really good. And they the government really supports research and they put a lot of money into research. And um, at that time, like it was getting really hard to get funding in the U.S. The rates were like around 10 percent or so. And then in China, there were more like 20 or 30% funding rates. So it was a lot higher and kind of had a, a feeling of growth and kind of moving forward. And, but also from a personal level, we just love the food here. It's so good. <laughs> it's just, What's like
0: your favorite? Oh,
2: man. There's so many things that are my favorite. There's one local dish called Hong Rou. It's kind of like pork fat, pork belly, like braised in a sweet glaze sauce. It's just. These huge pieces of meat. You can get a, a dish, a bowl of noodles, but it turns out it's one super long, stretchy noodle that's just delicious. What? Yeah. That sounds it's like got something like I would like. Spicy soups. <laughs> and I think the best food in the world has got to be in France and then China. They just have so many areas of the food. So that was a big draw for me. I love trying new foods. And of course, they've got tons of crazy stuff here that I, I've eaten cicadas and. I've eaten vegetables that have no English name. I've eaten animals I didn't know existed. So it's really, (laughs) really been fun. (laughs) Um, But my wife came with me when we visited and we also like the culture. It's kind of a group culture. So you join like a family and even when you eat, it's always around a round table and you get to share the food. So if you've ever had that experience where you ate with somebody and they got the better dish than you. And you just felt kind of jealous. You felt jealous. Yeah, now you can just yeah. spin the table and then you can try the good That's, dish. Usually I just have to
0: order what the person I'm eating with orders, or else I just stare at their food the whole time. <laughs> I have to be careful. They're like, hey, yeah. I'm like up here. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, next time if that happens and they get something better, just reach over and grab just a like, little and just say, oh, okay. I thought this yeah. was like Chinese culture to share. And so I just thought I could have some.
0: I like that advice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah. So that was a, a big draw in coming here. And it's just kind of it's an exciting place to be. I mean, it's somewhat similar to the Bay Area, just like a lot of new stuff happening. But they they run the university like a startup. Every year they have really? major changes Yeah, in the university, <laughs> just major improvements. They didn't have like a formal tenure process when I came and they put that in place. And they just major changes all the time. You've got to get used to that. But it, it makes it exciting. Um, some people say the foreigners that come to Shanghai they stay because it's it's kind of like a drug. There's so many new things and exciting things. There were no like there wasn't really a, a, a culture of starting companies when I came eight years ago, and now they've got a massive incubator that surrounds the campus with like 500 startup companies, like little ones all around. So it's just these crazy changes. Yeah, it's been fun. And then why do I stay? I think probably for similar reasons. My kids are growing up here. They're going to the local schools. My son is in fifth grade, my daughter's in second grade, and my other daughter's in preschool. The stereotypes are true. They teach math so well here. And he's like, his math is amazing. They just do a great job teaching. And we like the schools. And we made friends with Chinese people. And so, yeah, we feel pretty rooted here. And so we we really like China a lot. It's the news portrays a lot of the extreme things, which might be true, but it doesn't. it's not a picture of reality. So it's a little sad to see the distortion a little bit. Um, so, yeah, it's really a great place to live. And I hope you guys can come visit Shanghai sometime. We'd love to show you around and we can eat some weird stuff or some normal stuff. And just check out the yeah. Logs. That <laughs> sounds great. We
0: We're, want a long model. Yeah, we like weird things and normal things. So that sounds good.
2: <laughs> okay. I'm
0: curious too about the I guess like the culture of just like day-to-day like life and communication, um, like working mm. in the lab, like has there was there anything like sort of surprising about that or similar to working what it's like working with other people in the US on that level. What that what is that like?
2: Yeah. I think it was surprising to me how similar it was. I somehow had this idea that I would need to sort of clock in and be at certain places at certain times. And in the first few years, I was just like, nobody is checking on me. And I, it's up to me to you know, do my research and write my papers and grants and teach and stuff. And so that from that side, it was very similar. What's different? I mean, the language is different. I speak Chinese to my colleagues. I'm the only non... Chinese in my group, so that's very different. I just get Chinese emails all the time. I would say there's more of a group culture and more of a help each other, which is kind of cool. So like we have, I'm in a group with three or four professors and we have like three or four labs that we all share. So when I came in, I wanted a, you know, Vicon system with Burtec treadmills, a Burtec flip treadmill. And so that's what was part of my startup package. And then there's another group doing drones research and they had eight vicon cameras as well so they just decided to combine it to one huge lab with like 16 and then so now we alternate there's nets out so we're either running on the treadmill or there's like drones flying around with the net so they're not like killing we're never people. at the same time yeah <laughs> I know. maybe when they're gone <laughs> no
0: double booking in that lab yeah
2: lab. <laughs> yeah so um that. And like, like the professors will often go out to lunch together, which I don't know if that happens as much in the US. It's like, if people are around, they'll just walk to the cafeteria and eat lunch. So it's kind of a group, a group culture. There's a little bit more helping each other, like you'll help somebody else with their research, and they'll help you. So yeah, that's been, there's been a few different, I'm sure there's a 100 more, but those are a few that come to mind.
0: Mm -hmm. As you're talking a little bit about the you know the language, the different languages. it was making me think of um, a conversation I had a while ago about how there's so many amazing like research studies around the world, but we only know about you know a certain percentage of them because we can only you know read the languages that we can. Um, and I'm wondering if you've, as you're able to like speak multiple languages, do you feel like you've been exposed to, more research than like you otherwise would have or do you feel like there is that barrier there are there ways that we can sort of start to overcome those in research
2: yeah i I think the language isn't actually a huge barrier because almost all the research gets published in english here so one difference is the phd thesis will my students do it in english but most of the students will publish their thesis in chinese so that would be and thesis tend to get read more here in the, I don't know if ever, anyone's ever read my thesis in the US. They read the papers, but <laughs> I think I think it might be because of the language. So they write the similar content, but it'll be in Chinese. So people will read other thesis here. But I would say language is probably not a big a big deal, but the the regional differences. Like they'll have some regional conferences, right? That you will You'll get a lot of people from China and Asia, right? I'll meet people from Australia or Japan or Korea that it's closer. So that I think traveling to different conferences is still very important. The World Conference on Biomechanics is in Taipei next year, I I saw. So that's in Asia. So I hope that COVID allows everyone to travel there. You're going to get a lot more Asian people there. And uh, yeah, you guys can tack on a, a Shanghai stopover if you end up going to that.
0: Yeah we will will schedule that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I actually don't think that language is a big deal. At least in Chinese. Maybe Russian or some other languages have this, but in China they publish everything in English. So yeah, you can access those papers.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing all of that with us. It's so awesome to have your perspective. It's definitely one that we that's new to the podcast and it's, it's really cool to, to learn about that. Before we ask our last question, how can people learn more about you and your work and, and your lab?
2: Yeah, sure. So my lab is wearablesystems.org and then the company is sagemotion.com. So you can check both of those out to learn more.
1: All right. Sounds good. Awesome. Well, we're up to our last question, Pete. This has been so lovely, and we're excited to look to the future with you and ask you what you're most excited about for the future of wearable technology and biomechanics.
2: So uh, at the ISB conference, there was a debate on sort of machine learning versus musculoskeletal modeling. I don't know if you guys saw that. Yeah, it was a debate which I thought was super interesting because it's kind of where we're at in biomechanics is there's a lot of physics-based modeling research that goes on. And then there's a lot of interest in machine learning. And so what I'm excited about is what their conclusion was, was combining those two together. So using machine learning to tune these kind of musculoskeletal models or using musculoskeletal modeling as a the core of machine learning, I think that's going to be awesome. And it's because both have their strengths and weaknesses. And so there's so many different ways to model things. And there's so many different machine learning approaches that people have up until just recently, mostly been looking at them in completely separate is completely separate regions. And I know that because our lab is publishes in some of both, and it seems like there's just a divide. So getting those together is going to unlock some really interesting stuff. Doing machine learning in real time is also exciting. So there's models can now run fast enough to run in real time, which is super cool. I, I, get, like I mentioned that knee adduction moment estimation with the stage Motion system, we can do that in real time with the portable device. And so you can estimate this stuff with machine learning. I think OpenSIM is supported in Python. And I've seen another recent paper from your lab where they can do that kind of like run OpenSIM in a portable system, in real time is awesome. That is so cool. It's going to take all this stuff out of the lab and it's going to add on the intervention part from the assessment, which we've already had. So those are all very exciting for me.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I think we're excited about those things too. And I think you've put it nicely and talking about the advantages of both and bringing them together. And it's really cool to see how you've done that in so many different spaces in your work and your experiences. And just also really inspiring to hear how passionate you are about actually having like an application and helping people at the end of all of all of the awesome work you're doing. So thank you so much, Pete, for, for joining us today and for sharing
0: all that with us.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me on, guys.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. This has been awesome and we can't wait to have a big bowl of noodles in Shanghai. Yeah,
1: we we'll be there. <laughs> Actually, just a bowl of one noodle. I
0: <laughs> have a big <laughs> bowl of noodles? <laughs>
1: well, that was an awesome interview. Yes, it was. It was so fun to hear his experience. I'm really excited to eat one long noodle with him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> agreed, agreed.
1: And now we're on our research fails. And I think it was quite apparent. Our our fail was forgetting to ask Pete Scholl for his research fail. It
0: was. <laughs> so if you notice that, congratulations. <laughs> but now we're going to go back to that as a little extended clip. And we did end up asking Pete for his research fail. And it's hilarious. So you're going to want to keep listening. Research. Yes, it was. So we almost skipped over our question of asking you if you've ever experienced, and not, I guess everyone's experienced research fail, but if you'd be comfortable and willing to share a fail with us and what you were able to learn from that experience.
2: Yeah, sure. So I think research in general is almost always failing. So most of our, our proposals fail more fail than succeed, and papers more fail than succeed. So I think everyone knows that you got to just keep working on those. But we were kind of talking about language, so I just wanted to share a language fail. So since I've been here, I've been trying to speak in the local language, and I've had a lot of times where I said the wrong thing in a research context, so it wasn't necessarily about research, but I can just share one. of I have got many of these stories, but I can just share one. <laughs> I can share one. Please,
0: yeah. yeah. I already like have language issues just in English, so I can't imagine. <laughs>
2: okay, yeah. When I was a new faculty member here, I think the first within the first year or two, they had a retreat for all the the newish faculty members, and we went to a place a couple hours away and stayed overnight. And on the first night after dinner, we all met together in a big room, and uh, there were about forty new faculty members, and then all the leaders in the department. So the dean and the vice dean and several others were all there. And we were sitting in a big rectangle and we were going around with a microphone and each person was just introducing themselves, you know, where they're from, what their research is, and just saying a, a, you know, a sentence or two about themselves, but it was all in Chinese. So I was very nervous and there's so many people there and I'm a new faculty member And all the big bosses are there and the the dean and everything. So as it was going around, it was coming to me and I was thinking in my head what I was going to say and sort of practicing it. And so when I I finally got the microphone, what I thought I said was, hi, my name is Peter Scholl. I'm from the U.S. and I study wearable systems for sensing and feedback. And I really love China. I, I especially love Chinese food and Chinese culture. And just today, I tried a new kind of Chinese drink. So that's what I said in my head and what I thought I said. And what I actually said was, hi, my name is Peter Sho I'm from the U.S. Uh, I study wearable sensing and feedback. And I really love Chinese language and culture. And just today, I tried Chinese prostitution. <laughs>
0: just today, right before just the today. introduction. Yeah.
2: So that's what I said and the whole room just exploded with laughter and i had no idea why i thought oh yeah. I thought, they must think my chinese is so good they're just laughing with amazement and they just kept <laughs> yeah, laughing laughing
0: cuz it's <laughs> unbelievably good yeah
2: <laughs> yeah and my uh, so how did professor you out, like,
0: like yeah did he th- tell you this right on the professor like path?
2: leaned over and he said he said Pete, you didn't say what you thought you said and they just kept laughing And I tried to give the, and then I was like, oh no, I'm embarrassed. And I tried to give the microphone to the next person, and like, they wouldn't take it because everyone is still laughing for so long. So that was a huge fail. And that was like, that was like six or seven years ago. And I'll meet new people. I met another person from another department, and he's like, oh Peter, oh Peter, oh you're the guy that tried Chinese prostitution. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh man what a thing
0: to be remembered for oh my god yeah what a way to so, meet everyone
1: just like make yeah. a splash you know? yeah yeah
2: it's it was like that was a huge fail that like keeps going on and on so anyway yeah thanks for letting me the appreciate that yeah,
0: exactly. we appreciate that one i feel yeah. like that's one i'm gonna like keep in my back pocket to like <laughs> yeah. yeah make me laugh yeah when, <laughs> when
2: <I ever> <laughs> Uh, I figure you guys should know. The rest of China already knows about it, so now you know about it.
0: Now all of the U.S. will yeah, know about exactly. it, too. <laughs> yeah. Now even at the biomechanics conferences, people will be like, oh, okay. oh dear, yeah.
2: Yeah, oh, Chinese prostitution. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm, that's <awesome. laughs> Thank you for listening to Biomechanics on Our Minds. If you learned something new from this episode or took something away from it, make sure to share this episode with someone else who you think will learn something or find something some sort of amusement or enjoyment from the episode.
1: We'd also like to thank the International Society of Biomechanics for their support and Peter Washington for all the great music that you hear.
0: Thank you also to the Stanford Neuromuscular Biomechanics Lab, the Catalyst Project on Motivating Mobility, which you can learn more at motivatingmobility.stanford.edu.
1: If you'd like to submit a research fail, someone interviewed, you'd like to get involved or just be friends with us. We love Mm, new friends. We sure do. Yeah. Email us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at biomechanics O M. Oh, or Facebook too, if people still use that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, all the platforms, please. I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. Biomechanics, biomechanics
1: Off Our Minds. minds.